a lot of people would probably think, well, you're only selling soup in the fall and in the winter, but we actually have learned through this practice of forensically looking through data sets with AI to discover that there are actually opportunities year round because the feeling of the impact of that soup moment is different depending upon where you are. Living in the southeast in the summer, it's, you know, averages upper 80s, mid 90s, and we have a day in the 70s, that's kind of a soup day. I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. I am very excited about today's guest, and that is because he has many noteworthy accomplishments to his credit, including he beat Gary Kasparov at chess, he even beat two world champions in Jeopardy. Well, maybe actually he didn't personally do all of that, but his employer's AI supercomputer did exactly that, and that's how we know it quite well. I'm joined today by Robert Redmond, who is a design principal and the head of AI ad product design at IBM Watson Advertising. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I hope you don't take offense at this first question, but you hear head of AI product design, my mind doesn't automatically jump to agency creative director. However, you're approaching six years at IBM now, so I'm very curious. Tell us a little bit about the journey that you took, kind of what led you to IBM, and then what has kept you so engaged there. Sure. As I was looking to uh, the next step, the next thing that I would sort of take on as a personal challenge, uh, I thought a lot about what it would be like to be brand side. Uh, I ended up going to the Weather Channel, as uh, a creative director helping uh, lead the sort of internal agency practice where we would build dynamic creative experiences using data and technology and weather uh, to really convey um, a unique experience for the consumer. And then, you know, IBM acquired the weather company. And in, in that acquisition, I was given this opportunity to sort of transform our practice uh, to something that employed AI at, at sort of every turn and every step. For me personally, that was a, a huge invitation because I love a big challenge. I personally love the, the sort of middle point of, of technology and, and art and creative and how they can come together. So that's what brought me here. Uh, everything that's happened since then has been um, an exceptional experience. Excellent. So normally, you know, creative and data and analytics are usually considered to be on opposite sides of the table a little bit. But it sounds like you, you really enjoy the intersection there. What is it about that intersection that, or maybe about your background or your training or your personality that, that fascinates you so much about how those two can come together? It's interesting. I think um, early in, in actually my education, I, was, I had this curiosity uh, for understanding things, um, breaking things down, taking them apart, uh, seeing if I can build them back together. I think that naturally led to um, in my professional experience, looking at problems, not just through the lens of how can I solve this visually or um, from, a, from a user experience perspective, but how can I understand it more? And I think the, the sort of the acquisition of knowledge um, to, to sort of help in that piece of it, the understanding to influence the design, led me down this path of breaking down data, breaking down a product, understanding the mechanisms and, and, and to, to be able to code itself, not just like the data that flows through code, but how, how code works. Data is inherently the conduit to really getting around uh, the problem, right? Like understanding the data really informs the way in which we can translate that into a solution. Interesting. So at IBM, you've led Watson Conversations, 
Um, and as I, I'll quote here, the world's first cognitively powered ad experience. So as, as we are fond, uh, especially I can relate to this being in marketing at an AI company as well, very fancy language. But tell us exactly what, what does that mean? What does that do for your customers? And maybe bring it to life with an example, if you could. Sure. So um, Watson Conversations is um, at, at, at the ground level, it's a one-to-one -one conversation between a consumer and a brand. And what, what, it, what the, the technology does is it allows us to put a brand in their advertising campaign in, in a position to really interact with a consumer uh, on the consumer's own terms. It allows, you know, for example, um, in an automotive space, right, you know, Clay, your, your interests in a vehicle and what's important to you might be different than me. Maybe we're at different stages of life. Maybe we have, just have different tastes. So by allowing conversation to drive that interaction, we can use this technology to allow you to have those explore, explorative conversations around a product. And we do that through the ability to, to have dialogue itself, right? So a consumer can come in and actually type in a question. Perhaps we ask them a question. They can actually give us a response as opposed to just like choosing a button and I'm kind of like moving through a website. This is all happening in an organic space uh, and, and, and in a way that we've all become accustomed to, which is the sort of chat interface. You know, the majority of us would rather probably um, text with customer service online than we would to pick up a phone and call and talk to someone because we're busy and we want to keep moving. And it's become such a natural component of how we interact. We built that model into this ad engagement experience and using that power of AI for understanding, natural language processing, uh, and some of the predictive components, we can actually drive a better conversational experience and hopefully give uh, a meaningful outcome to both the consumer who who's had a great experience. Maybe they had a uh, a color recommend to them. We did something for Bear Paint where we took a bunch of inputs and we recommended the right color for the consumer based on their tastes and their emotions around the room they were talking about. So for, for that consumer, they get this color recommendation. But for the brand, they get this great insight into what are the emotions around rooms and how does that apply to color? How can we use that as sort of a, a, a scaled um, user study group uh, to 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 drive insights and strategies as they move forward in their marketing campaigns. Interesting, interesting. Well, so what I'd like to dig into a little bit, um, given that we've both spent a decent amount of time and in our careers at agencies, you more recently than me, so I think you're, I'm very interested to hear your perspective. And agencies, like any business, have, have this healthy combination of uh, intellectual curiosity about what's new, and paranoia of what might be a competitive threat or what might be what might infringe on your business. And it seems to me that AI has taken root a bit more in that latter category about that threat to agencies. Um, as someone who has those deep roots, do you think that agencies should be embracing AI? Should they be nervous about it or a little bit of both? Where do you fall on that? I think we as a as a general group should be embracing these technologies. The, the fear factor that comes around, you know, especially in the design practice, am I going to be replaced, right? Is this technology going to get so smart um, that I become, uh, my role becomes jeopardized? I don't think we arrive there um, because it is essentially the human um, sort of flavor, the intelligence that we bring to those parts of our practice that help this technology do more for us. Uh, we can use it in our creative. We can use it to better understand audience. 
even all the way down to just like very sort of standard um, practices around supporting our clients, like looking at things like churn models and can we predict where there might be um, some loss for a brand partner and how can we how can we help them circumvent that? So I think that we should all be embracing it. I think that there's a myriad of different paths all the way from client service to how we buy media and understand the analytics all the way out to how we do uh, conceptual and strategic um, development for our clients that, that this can be applied in. So if you were still on the agency side, how would you approach encouraging, pushing, convincing your colleagues to take better advantage of these technologies, to see the potential that they offer? That's a, that's a challenging question because I think, you know, as, as, we, as we tend to um, roll through, you know, RFP after RFP or pitch after pitch, uh, much less the standard execution of uh, of campaigns and 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 sort of day to day business. You have to find this opportunity in there to um, encourage and and sort of um, I guess inspire to to sort of a, apply new technology. Um, ways that I've done things like this in the past, and I, you know my my experience here has been um, in the IBM space for this. But the the ways that I've done this with other things in the past is fine find a tiger team or, you know, a small group that's willing to, to take a little risk and develop something to, to sort of prove it out. And I think in agencies, we tend to have this, generally speaking, flexibility wherein um, there is going to be someone there who loves technology, who loves craft, who wants to push themselves a bit further to advance themselves in their career. You know, find, find those groups and help them um, sort of explore the path forward so that um, so that they can set an example so they can sort of start that that little energy spark that you need to transform an entire practice and I've seen um, you know working with with some of the larger holding companies via IBM there is a lot of traction in this space and it, it's traditionally formed around the media space right around media and understanding media and I think a lot of a lot of those successes have come from there's so much happening in the in the advertising industry that we have to do better at understanding it and so a lot of these um holding companies have have stood up practices to to begin to understand how it all works and what they can do to get ahead of the transformations we're seeing and i think they did that by really taking a small group and throwing it at a problem saying hey we don't know how we're going to deal with this this problem exists um, it's not something that any of us really have time to solve, but inevitably it's going to impact our business. So let's let's apply this and see what happens. And those practices are really gaining traction uh, and moving ahead. I think there's a lot of a lot of merit to that because the common dialogue in in media is often about the adversarial nature. You kind of want there's more drama if you pit something against something else. So this notion mm-hmm. of the the new the new way is going to replace the old way or technology is going to replace human contribution and so i I think that what you're proposing is that if you humanize it and make it tangible if you actually apply it in a way you kind of turn on the lights in the room and it's not quite so scary anymore so people can connect to it better um, i think there's a lot a lot to be said for that Um, so one of the greatest challenges that we see and where where octana focuses a lot of its attention is in this connection of strategy through to execution, mm-hmm. and that there's typically a lot of opportunities for gaps and misfires in that 
in that connection or their lack thereof because the strategy will be done by agency leads, they'll be done by mm -hmm. headquarters leads, and then the execution may happen months and months later out in the field with a sales rep or with a marketing manager who's managing digital channels. How can AI play a more effective connecting role here? How do you see it being able to bridge that gap? Because that's been a, that's been a problem for for ages, that mm -hmm. strategy is created, then it lives, you know, gets put under glass and everybody, you know, worships at it, but then the execution is completely off course and doing something different. So where does AI play a connecting role there in your mind? Uh, I think uh, this might be slightly controversial for those of us who have more of a traditionalist approach, but I, I believe that um, AI can, can sort of create this loop, um, feedback loop, that sort of transforms what we see as strategy today. Like that idea of strategy inside of a glass box and it, it sort of, it lives there and it's protected and, it, and it's, um, it's sort of uh, special. Um, I think that what we can start to understand are the parts of the ecosystem that the, that the strategy can't, can't really contain. And those are the things that happen once it's passed down to the marketing manager and it's out in the field and it's being executed. And so that feedback loop should continuously inform, right? And so you can use AI to understand that. You can use um, AI to inform it. You can use AI to even identify it, right? To find these patterns that strategy doesn't see, the leaders driving strategy don't see, the marketers in the field executing the strategy don't see, but there's something there that's happening and maybe it's like, oh, we have this amazing strategy. It's going to change our business. We're going to sell so many products. And we get out there and we, we commit to this and like we're just not seeing it. And somewhere in there, there's a gap. And we don't see it as humans because we're moving too fast and because our parts are too disparate. AI doesn't care about all those things. All it sees is the data in between and it helps us identify those relationships. So I think we're going to grow into an age as, as this becomes more uh, adopted where strategy becomes something that's more fluid and flexible, something that's a little bit more reactive to the feedback that we can get if we can craft this kind of loop. And you can look at that all the way down into, you know, uh, some of the areas where it's really being done now within media about, you know, how performant is my campaign and not just from a, from like a click-through rate to get really like pedestrian, but but generally from, um, from sort of taking all the signals across a campaign and pulling them all into one view, you may find that your strategy isn't as strong in this part of the business as you thought it was, and you're going to have to evolve it. What AI does is it augments that process and allows us to do that in real time as opposed to at a six-month or at least a quarterly review. And that's what's going to save business time, money, and effort over the course of, of a, a fiscal year and how they spend, it'll probably also clean up a lot of waste because we tend to spend too much in the wrong areas for too long before we realize that it's not doing what we're hoping it will do. I think there's a lot of those things that will, um, that will really facilitate a better sort of communion between strategy and results because of these tools that will be built in between. Yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, you, the two themes that you hit on there that I I completely, completely agree with one is this dynamic real time aspect of like there is no <laughs> lag and there is no sense that in January you create your strategy and in October you're still trying to execute against it, that you're constantly iterating on it based on what you learn. And then that that's the second part. It's the feedback loop 
so that you are being informed by what's actually happening mm -hmm. in real time and, and you're able to make those adjustments. So yeah, no, we'll, we could go back and forth just echoing one another <laughs> on that topic if we wanted to. Um, but one thing you're touching on there is the, the balance between, it's not an either or, it's like there's certain tasks and roles that are suitable for AI, and there's mm -hmm. certain areas where human contribution is gonna be essential. So how do you look at that, that marriage or partnership and where the strengths lie for each? Yeah, I th you know, so the, the IBM philosophy um, on AI is that we're not, we're not working with artificial intelligence, right? That assumes that it's doing something in and of its own and that it stands alone, artificial. We, we, we tend to approach it more from the framework of augmented intelligence. And ultimately, like the class, the, the, the sort of classification of AI and what we're working with in the, I would say the indefinite future, until we get to a point where like computing is so powerful that it can do more things, right? We're dealing in an augmented space. This intelligence that we create when we make the machine smart, when we give it tasks and it performs them well, when it begins to identify things, it's because of the amount of effort that we have put into that experience. We've helped train it. Um, we're, we're going to make the classically driven strategic decisions. They're just going to be better informed by better data understanding, not just a ginormous pool of data. Uh, so I think that, you know, there are parts of it in the, the purchasing of media, the speed at which things need to happen. I even look beyond our space at like the stock exchange when numbers are flying very quickly. There's a level of interaction that's happening there that we as humans, we just can't process. We, we're not built to do that and we never will be. Um, to read numbers, react and respond and actually take action in real time. And in those places, machine learning, um, intelligent uh, sort of algorithms, they will do that work, but we're telling them how to do it, right? We're setting the parameters, we're augmenting their decisioning by defining the constraints, the, the sort of um, the, the north and south constraints through which they can operate. Um, and those machines, th those systems will run. On the flip side, there are scenarios where we're always going to be involved. And I think from a creative perspective to, to sort of pull back to Watson conversations, you know, we don't let um, Watson compose responses. That's something that we have a team that participates in because no brand in their right mind would be willing to let the system just sort of say whatever it wants um, in any industry. So there's a level of augmentation that will always be a part of, of that relationship between uh, you know, uh, sort of creator and algorithm that helps inform the outcomes. And I think that to, to sort of echo back to the creative question a little while ago, or the, the agency question, I think that that's one of the things that we tend to get caught up on is if we teach it too much, does it become too smart? Uh, but we teach it every time, like every new instance, every new opportunity. It's not like there's some sort of thing that's just like continuously all knowing, that's the AI of sci-fi that is still, you know, I'm hopeful 50 to 75 years away. Um, it's not the space that we're living in now where we're creating this sort of autonomous system that, that knows everything. Instead, each time we, we create something new or we, we stand up a new solution, uh, for example, each Watson conversation is a brand new experience and it has to be retrained because it's different topicality. And so there's the, always going to be that humanism um, aligned with the process. That's interesting. So you guys, because I was going to ask you, you know, part of the consumer experience that I think has soured people a little bit on AI is that lack of 
human tone to the chatbot interaction mm -hmm. or but the Watson conversation approach is that you don't allow the machine to have that one-to-one -one dialogue you you recognize that at that point it needs to become about understanding tone and inflection and re right. and, and building a one-to-one -one human relationship as opposed to that frustration that comes where you're going oh okay i know i'm i'm in a machine i'm on a script i need to just start screaming i want to talk to an agent at some right. point in time in order to get out of this loop yeah, I think that's the difference between an intelligent search engine and a conversational um, product. You know, a conversational assistant should be able to maybe not spend on the dime the way that you and I could, right? We could be talking about what we're talking about now, and then all of a sudden you mention bowling and we switch subjects and, wrote, you know, go in a different direction. Yeah. But it should at least be able to, to, to really understand and respond and, and recognize when it doesn't. So many times I've used um, assistants or, or platforms – um, where you kind of get to a point and it's like you're beating your head against the wall. Like, I don't understand you. I don't understand you. I don't understand you. And it's like the simplest thing to change. Uh, all we have to do is build into our practices a mechanism that doesn't say, I don't understand you. It says, I think you mean, and starts driving you towards directions um, that are back on, on, on concept. Now, that's just conversational design. That has nothing to do with the system. But when you do it intelligently, you allow the system to interact, right? If there's an intent that comes in and we think we know what you're saying, but we're unsure. We're going to let you know. I think you might mean, and we're going to put two choices out there and, and let you teach the system, right? So you say, oh yeah, that's what I meant. You, you tap on something. The system goes, okay, next time I hear that, I'm going to probably try and just go here and see if that works. Uh, and so when, when we do that, we're, we're intelligently designing conversation and, and using AI to assist that conversation that, um, that drives a better outcome as opposed to like that head against the wall, head against the wall <laughs> experience yeah. that you can that you can have. That context that's needed to really drive the most effective interactions a lot of times comes from knowledge of what's going on around you, what's going on mm -hmm. in that particular consumer's life, what's happening in that industry. And so how does a company like IBM, which services virtually every industry on the planet, think about specialization. We as a company at Octana are at the other end of the spectrum. We, we only work with life science companies because mm -hmm. their needs are so specialized. And we identified that, you know what, we need to actually go very narrow and very deep and become expert in that as opposed to broad, broadly applicable. So how do, you, how do you marry that need for understanding in real depth the context of a situation or an interaction mm -hmm. or an industry with IBM's broad focus? That's an interesting and perplexing question. I think we have a lot of tools in play just from uh, the, the sort of types of products that we've created that deal with context in interesting ways. I think of it more as building blocks, right? Um, even, even talking about the life sciences component, there are building blocks to context. And so um, we, I think, tend to think of it in that way. And speaking generally as IBM sort of overall, you know, we touch pretty much every vertical in some form or fashion. So there's a specialization um, across the org and in different silos that um, that have sort of this uh, this practice of of creating these these signals that work within those groups. For us in IB, in Watson advertising specifically, we focused on how we can use um, layered data um, to help define contextual moments. So weather is a core component of some of the, the data that IBM uh, sought out the weather company for. Uh, and a, the reason that we're part of this family now 
And that's core to context, right? It's core to understanding a consumer's frame of mind, especially in the advertising space because of how much weather can impact a purchase decision depending on the vertical we're talking about. Um, you know, in the, in, the, in the sort of life sciences space, you know, it could be something that's like around seasonal allergies and we can use the context of, of that space and what we know about how that impacts us as a, as a nation, where, um, where those contexts... Um, where context arrives for a consumer and when we have changed into this moment of, oh, well, allergy season's here or pollen's high or whatever, we can actually inform messaging with that, with that information in interesting ways and then build into that a, a practice of sort of adding other uh, layered features. So maybe taking um, a, another signal from a partner that pulls in retail data and, and we can layer the two of those together and start to combine them to create um, interesting signals to inform something for that specific vertical. Um, I think that, you know, the the power of context and the power of the way in which we can sort of move across a vast ocean of data to to sort of move the lens based on the vertical or industry that we're, that we're particular you know, operating within. Um, that's w- one of the areas in which AI becomes very powerful because you have these sort of massive oceans of data and be able to get really forensic into, um, we were talking life sciences there, but like looking at CPG and even that as a broad category, um, is is so big. And then we drive that all the way down into maybe like soups, right? And so getting really, really forensic, we can use that same data set to drive a contextual uh, picture through just the soup category and understand some really interesting things around, what drives soup sales and what drives, like, what is a soup moment? And, you know, a lot of people would probably think, well, you're only selling soup in the fall and in the winter because that's when people want it. But we actually have learned through this practice of, like, forensically looking through data sets with AI to discover that there are actually opportunities year-round because the, the, the feeling of weather, the feeling of the impact of that soup moment is different depending upon where you are and how you're experiencing your reality. So if you live in the Northeast in the summer um, and you have a cool day, probably not that big a deal. Living in the Southeast in the summer and it's, you know, averages 80, upper 80s, mid 90s, and we have a day in the 70s, like that's kind of a soup day, right? And <laughs> that's not me saying that as someone who lives in the South, that's science and, and, and data saying that. So there's some interesting um things that we can build out of looking at, at, at context and data around context through the lens of AI at a very macro um, viewpoint that give us some really interesting insights that we can build things on. Interesting. I kind of want some soup right now. Um, so, <laughs> so, so let me ask you then, thinking about the future, I will ask kind of the cliched question from your vantage point, which is a very informed one given your background and the work that you're doing. Do you have a perspective on what you think we're going to see next? Like what is going to be the next application of AI that starts to capture attention, either in a very narrow way for a particular sure. audience or a particular industry or in a, in a broad way? Do you have a view on that? I'd say one area that I'm very excited about uh, personally as I look through all the, the possibilities that we're creating and crafting is the, the influx of data, right, even today as we record this, there are, you know, billions and billions of bytes of data being uploaded and, you know, a a thousand news stories have been published. Like there's just so much data 
amassing. And, and with the influx of 5G and faster speeds and more devices and the connected devices, th- there's this opportunity that we've probably been talking about for the better part of a decade and sort of this like, I think people have developed kind of a false hope for the data mecca of the future. But I think 5G opens that up for us because it allows us to have these connected um, sort of fluid uh, interactions with with different with with devices uh, with locations, so there's going to be this data that's available, and I'm really excited about that because I think it opens up new and different possibilities, especially in the face of you know privacy concerns and things of that nature. This ability to kind of like sort of find new paths to realization of opportunities. So it's not specifically the practice of AI. I think what what it becomes is the the data grows so much that we need faster and faster AI. And another space that, you know, IBM's been very focused on that I don't have probably the most knowledge on, but um, is a big piece of our research business is quantum and how quantum machine learning will be applied to this decisioning and understanding at scale when data becomes so massive. Uh, So I think that there are some areas there that I'm very excited about. Um, another space is I think AR has a massive future, augmented reality, um, and I think that AI will will continue to play a larger and larger role in that space. We're going to go from um, and experiences that are they're sort of like traditionally kind of like one D, if you will, like just sort of a thing, like an object placed in a room or on a table, to these very intricate experiences. Um, a little part of me, uh, the, the advertising part of me, hopes that it becomes the new rich media of the future, uh, a la Back to the Future uh, types experiences. I think that we have that opportunity in front of us with data and all the screens that we have access to. And I think that visual recognition will play a huge part in that. Yeah, makes sense. So the last question I have for you before we get to the really fun stuff here, I am struck by a line that you have in your LinkedIn profile, especially right now, that talks about the relentless belief in the notion that everything is possible. So given what we're all living through and contending Mm -hmm. with, how have you found inspiration and how have you been able to adhere to that relentless belief over the last eight, nine months since this has become a a reality for all of us in this country and and globally. So that is it's kind of core to my being first and foremost. I've always been a doer and a learner and I think that this this notion of everything is possible is essentially sort of a personal belief that even if someone's saying it's not possible, I, I will be the Buddhist opposite of that and that actually it is possible. You're only making it not possible by saying it, right? And so applying that practice to, to creativity, to business, to product building is, is essentially, I think the caveat there is with enough resources and, and sort of effort, you can do it. Um, throughout this experience, the you know the the past nine months, um, it's been an interesting go. I typically sit in a big glass building in mid or uh, Brookhaven, Atlanta, uh, with a you know amazing view and all my partners uh, adjacent to me. And and you know today here I'm um, I'm in my little garage space. Uh, so I don't know. I f- I feel like we have as a society had some really interesting ups and downs <laughs> around how we can positively come together for change, how we can positively influence um, a bright future, uh, at least looking at the the sort of bright side of everything. And I also think that, you know, 
we have overcome some pretty interesting challenges. We started off this whole experience trying to, you know, sort of figure out as a business, how do we, how do we participate in, in this pandemic? And, and, you know, IBM at, at large has done a great bit of effort towards supporting research and kind of helping uh, get towards a good place with vaccines and understanding um, the COVID space. We as an organization rallied in the very beginning uh, moments of all of this to create a bunch of resources there were, you know, it was like this, I don't know if we can do this, but we ended up creating something where we were getting up-to-date um, COVID counts from every county in the country, and we pulled that off very, very quickly. You know, it was one of those things where we didn't know if we could build a mechanism. That used a ton of AI, it used a ton of, like, understanding around the, every single county in the in the country was sort of laying these things out differently but we set our minds to it. We, we created a vision on something to move towards and uh, seeing teams spin up and work for like nonstop. It became more of like a, less of a job and more of a passion project. Uh, and I think, I think kind of the realization is that that has sort of maintained that there has been this energy moving forward this entire year that I think that um, the sort of nexus of that experience set forth uh, and we've achieved some really big things despite the challenges we've all been up against. Excellent. That's great. I don't know if I really answered the question there. <laughs> no, that's good. That's helpful. And no, thank you for, for all the perspective. So what we're going to do here, we're going to pivot. Obviously, if the premise of this is about contextual intelligence, it's the notion of the more context that you have on a subject, the better understanding, the better decisions you can make about it. So. We want to understand Robert Redmond in a little greater context. So I've got a couple of questions here for you if you're game and up for it. Okay. Um, we're going to jump into it. So who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? Edward Tufte or Tuft. Um, I don't even you know who he is. He's an American. Um, he was a statistician. I think he, he was a professor. Uh, but he did a lot of work towards data visualization in like the, I want to say the 60s and 70s, somewhere in that range, um, and published a ton of books. Uh, and it was the study of visual information that really, I think, hearkening back to, to sort of earlier in our conversation, uh, I think it was a lot of reading those books and about how he broke down data and information that helped influence the way my brain works a little bit. Um, so I've always loved him. I've seen him a couple times talking. I've, I've got several of his books on my shelves. Uh, he, he's just been a huge influence in the way that he processed visual informa or data information and made it visual um, and translated into these really just wonderful pieces of, of art, but art with meaning uh, and purpose and, um, and data behind it. So, uh, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So if money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? I can, I can answer that one pretty quickly. I'd, I would be an, like, a, like a tour guide, like an outdoor sports tour guide. I love to mountain bike. I rock climb. I backpack. Um, I bike pack. Like I would love to just open up my own little guide, tour guide company and just like take people out and show them nature and uh, show them um, safe adrenaline, like how to – how to have an experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. I love, I love seeing it in my children. Uh, I love seeing it in friends when, when we, when we have somebody come out for the first time. So I think I would, I'd get a real kick out of that. Well, I hope you find a way to do that. We've only talked, <laughs> we've too. only talked twice, but I can see, I can totally see you in that role 
<laughs> being the, being the guide, motivating people, giving them the right the right view of whatever activity it is. That's cool. Um, how about on the other side? What profession would you most not want to pursue, no matter what it paid? You know, you would think I had done some pre-thought on this one. <laughs> I, th- I think that there are a couple of thankless careers out there that, you know, um, I, I love, I get to work a lot with privacy lawyers and, um, and, and legal teams, and I, I greatly admire many of them. Um, but I think that some of the, the sort of tribulations that they have to that they have to go through like I just don't, I don't know if I could do it uh, yeah you know, I it's one of those spaces that I've always been so adjacent to and I get along we, we have such great conversation and debate and um, they, the partnerships that I've created with people in, in that space have have certainly influenced me and how I think but I don't know that I could do it I don't think I could do law I think it might drive yeah. me slightly crazy Wow, Robert, you're already the creative director who embraces data and analytics if you had it. And I would love to be a lawyer as well. On top of that, I'm not quite sure we'd know how to categorize you. So um, so what is the what's the best book? And I can expand this a little bit. What's the best book or film or show mm. since we're all doing a lot of that that you've enjoyed recently and why? So um, I'll do two. Uh, I had originally written down a book um, that I'm reading right now, The Master Algorithm by Pedro Domingos. Uh, it's just a fantastic read on um, the concepts and strategies behind uh, what it is we're doing with AI and, and just this great sort of beautiful, although technical, uh, read around sort of machine learning and AI and, 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 and the industry that we touch. So I think that, that you know, anyone who wants to sort of really dive in, it's a great book. From a television perspective, like to totally, you know, I'm I'm in the Netflix space. I I I'm freaking loving um, the Umbrella Academy. My wife and I have been enjoying that this past week. We waited a really long time so we could watch these two seasons back to back. Nice. Um, and we just finished the first one, and I was just like, wow, because uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's like a really interesting conceptual and and sort of um, psychological uh, sort of uh, story. So it's been a really yeah. interesting. Adventure. I've heard that a couple of times. I've heard that a yeah. couple of times. So that'll have to go on my list. Um, uh-huh. Okay. So you're at a family gathering. Your <laughs> eight-year-old nephew asks you what you do for a living. And we're assuming that your eight-year-old nephew is not like an AI genius who's about to go to Harvard or something. So what do you, what do you tell him? You know, traditionally it's been, uh, I make those apps that you play on the phone free um, from an advertising perspective. Uh, as my career is transformed, um, I think it would be more along the lines of um, I teach computers to think, to talk, to understand, um, so that you can interact with them in new and meaningful ways. Like, meaningful cool. might be a, a hard word for an eight-year-old, but I have an eight-year-old right. and he gets it. So, Last question. So your ultimate dinner party for four, who is in attendance and what is served? It's Steve Jobs, Steve Hawking, Carl Sagan, and Paul Rand, who are all my heroes. Uh, it would be potluck because I want to. I want to know what each of them would bring. <laughs> it would. It would be like an adventure. That's fantastic. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So the conversation. I'm kind of more curious about the potluck part than the conversation. To be honest. With you. <laughs> 
That's excellent. That's excellent. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really, really interesting conversation uh, and got into some topics we haven't touched on before. So we appreciate your time and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Clay. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.